Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. And I'm Krista Carmen. And this is... Murder Coaster. Guten Tag, mein Damen und Herren. Today, we journey back to post-World War I Germany, a time of unbridled anarchy when a werewolf roamed the streets of Hanover, literally ripping the throats out of his innocent victims with his bare teeth. Brace yourself, ladies and gentlemen, for the horrific and terrifying tale of Fritz Hamann, the Wolfman of Hanover. Let's begin. When Germany entered World War I, the government was so confident that they would win the war, they funded their war efforts entirely by borrowing, thinking they could pay back the debt with war reparations after their sure victory. Unlike France, which imposed its first income tax to pay for their war efforts. But Germany lost the war, which left the new Weimar Republic saddled with a debt of 132 billion gold marks, an amount which would equal $506 billion in today's money. This debt was further exasperated by printing money without any economic resources to pay it back, as they'd suspended the gold standard at the beginning of the war. This, further exasperated by war reparations, caused astonishing hyperinflation. The German mark began to lose value so quickly, on a daily basis, that employers were forced to pay their workers at lunch so that they could go out and buy supplies for their families. Because if they were paid at the end of the day, who knew how much the mark would be worth? To put it in perspective, in early 1922, one United States dollar was worth 160 German marks. And by November of 1923, one United States dollar was worth four trillion two hundred billion German marks. So a loaf of bread that had cost 160 marks now cost 200 billion marks. It's fucking insane. A wheelbarrow full of money couldn't buy a newspaper. And there are photographs of people at that time with wheelbarrows full of money trying to buy basic goods. The government was forced to print million mark notes, then billion mark notes. Shopkeepers couldn't replenish their stock fast enough to keep up with prices. And farmers refused to sell their produce for worthless money. Food riots broke out. Townspeople marched into the countryside to loot farms. And to make matters worse... In the city of Hanover, it was feared there was a werewolf on the loose. On the 17th of May, 1924, two children playing near the Line River discovered a human skull. Police were skeptical as to whether it was a murder victim, figuring it was most likely a typhoid victim, or perhaps had been discarded by grave robbers, an occupation which had begun to blossom amidst the economic crisis. But two weeks later, another skull was found, and shortly thereafter, a sack of human bones was discovered. 
Then more and more skulls began to turn up, all bearing knife nicks, one showing evidence of being scalped. For years, rumors had been circulating of missing children and teenagers, and concerned Hanover residents joined together to search the Lean River, discovering numerous human bones. The police dragged the river, which ran through the center of the city, and discovered 500 more bones and sections of bodies, some aged, others very, very recent. Immediately, suspicion fell on an odd little man named Fritz Harman. Fritz, who looked like a combination of Oliver Hardy and Hitler, that same little weird mustache, had 15 previous convictions for the sexual assault and battery of children dating all the way back to 1896. He'd also been connected to the 1918 disappearance of two teenagers. But Fritz was a well-connected man. He was a valued police informant, and Hanover police were loath to consider him a suspect, especially as he gave off a weak and effeminate perception. It wasn't until detectives from Berlin were called in that he became a serious suspect. Most citizens were left unemployed after the war. There was no food or money, and there were few police, and the streets became utterly lawless. Men who'd returned from war would travel the country, trying to find any way to feed their families, leading to theft, robbery, and crime. Many ended up dead or in jail, their wives now left to support the family, who became easy targets for robbery and worse. Children had no school and wandered the streets, searching for any means of survival, often turning to sex work or crime. And in all of this chaos, Hanover had only 12 detectives, so informants became crucial. But since there was no money to pay informants, instead they were allowed to commit petty crimes. One of these men was Fritz Harman. For years, Fritz aided the police in busting counterfeit money operations, bank robberies, huge thefts. He became so important that he was issued his own police identification card giving him unlimited access to train stations, businesses, and even people's homes. He was free to roam the streets at night, giving orders to the underground criminal world. With suspicion falling on Harman, he was placed under surveillance by the detectives from Berlin. And on June 22, 1924, Harman was observed by two undercover officers prowling Hanover's central train station one of his favorite haunts. He was soon observed arguing with a 15-year-old boy named Carl Fromm before approaching a uniformed police officer and insisting they arrest the youth on the charge of traveling with forged documents. But the youth told the police a very damning and harrowing tale. Carl told the police that he'd been living with Fritz Harman for four days and that he'd been repeatedly raped by him, sometimes with a knife held to his throat. Harmon was arrested the following morning and charged with sexual assault. Following the arrest, Harmon's attic room at number two Rot Reich was searched. The entire room was covered in bloodstains. The walls, the floor, the bedding, everything caked in blood, including knives and butchering tools. 
When confronted with this, Fritz Harman explained it away as a byproduct of his illicit contraband meat enterprise. High-quality meat had become quite coveted in the black market, and Fritz explained he'd use this small room as an underground butcher's den, where he'd cut and prepare meat to sell. Something well known to the local police, for he'd often furnished them with fine pieces of meat. When police interviewed neighbors, many of them commented how they'd seen Harman leading teenage boys to his apartment, never to see them leave again and how often the man would be seen leaving with sacks and bags late at night. Two had even once followed him and observed him emptying a sack into the lean river. Furthermore, clothing and objects found in Fritz Harman's apartment were found to have belonged to a number of missing teenagers. This, too, Harman tried to brush aside as part of his work in the black market, where he traded clothing and other goods. But the evidence was overwhelming, especially when not only were the clothes and boots of a missing 18-year-old named Robert Witzel, whose skull was discovered in the Lean River, found in the apartment, but his keys as well. And a witness came forward saying they'd seen Robert with Fritz Harman shortly before he went missing. Confronted with this information, Fritz broke down and began to talk. What unfolded was a tale of savagery, cannibalism, and murder that would shock the world, as the Wolf Man of Hanover confessed to slaughtering upwards of 70 young men and boys over a 26-year period. And this is where our story begins. Friedrich Heinrich Karl Harman was born on the 25th of October, 1879, to parents Ali and Johanna. He was the sixth and youngest child. His mother, Johanna, was seven years older than his father, and this last birth at the age of 50 almost spelled the end for her. She was hospitalized for weeks after the delivery and had a slow recovery. It's said that Ali married Johanna, an older woman who's on her way to becoming a spinster, because of her large inheritance. Ali was known around town as Socky Ali and was said to be a miserable and violent drunk who beat his children mercilessly and carried on numerous affairs with many women, eventually contracting syphilis, which he passed on to Johanna. But far from being contrite over infecting his wife with a sexually transmitted disease, he blamed her, saying she was so old and ugly, he had no choice but to quell his passions elsewhere. And Johanna, sadly, accepted this insulting and terrible excuse and forgave him. Ali also often drunkenly bragged about having killed a man, a co-worker at the train station, saying he'd tossed the body off of a moving train where it had never been found. Little Fritz heard this tale many times as Ali loudly boasted about it to his friends during drinking bouts in their home. Little Fritz was the apple of his mother's eye and the bane of his father's existence. He was a quiet and introverted child who despised playing with the other boys. Instead, he stayed at home with his sisters, playing with dolls. He even became a life-size doll himself, his sisters dressing him up in their clothing and painting him with makeup, which made both his brothers and his father 
disgusted. Fritz was quite effeminate as a child and engaged in what his father saw as woman's work, helping to cook and sew, often sewing dresses for his sister's dolls and for themselves, practicing needlepoint and creating beautiful cross-stitch designs his father would then disgustedly throw in the trash. But he was his mother's favorite. And as the money for the household came from her inheritance, he was spoiled with new clothes, shoes, and any toy he might ask for, while his brothers and sisters went without. Because of this, a great resentment rose between himself and his siblings. Fritz delighted in scaring his siblings as well. He'd regale them with tales of werewolves and ghosts then would creep out at night and tap on their windows. As he grew larger and stronger, playing with his sisters took a strange turn. He'd convince them to let him tie them up, then abandon them as they struggled to get free. Sometimes the girls would be left tied up and struggling so long they would soil themselves before they could be rescued. At school, too, Fritz became known for hiding in the shadows and leaping out to frighten the other children. He'd also occasionally insist on coming to school dressed in his sister's clothes, which didn't help with fitting in and making friends. While ostensibly intelligent, he was a terrible student and would sit daydreaming during classes and was held back a year, which further isolated him from his peers and put him in constant contact with much younger children. When he was just eight years old, he was molested by a teacher. Later, Fritz would claim this had little effect on him, and was just an amusing antidote. But I wonder at that. Many times those with antisocial personality disorder are able to compartmentalize their trauma and claim it had no bearing on their personalities. For instance, Ted Bundy tells of finding an old trunk inside of which was his birth certificate, on which was written, bastard, father, unknown, and listing who he thought was his sister as his actual mother. This was how he realized the truth about who his mother was and that the man he thought was his father was actually his grandfather. But up until his dying day, he claimed this had no effect on him at all and he had a happy and loving family life, though friends and acquaintances all say he was deeply traumatized by the event. At 15 years old, Fritz Harmon dropped out of school and apprenticed as a locksmith in the city of Neufbreisach, but he soon returned home, utterly disgraced, though no one, including his employer, would speak of what exactly he had done, only that it was grotesque moral failing. Then, in April of 1895, he enrolled in the military. While one may think that this awkward, effeminate, and introverted boy would be a terrible candidate for military life. He excelled. He'd grown into a trim, strong young man, and the structure suited him. He actually enjoyed the strict discipline. He loved combat training and was an excellent shot. And there was talk of him being offered a field commission and being made an officer. But he kept being found staring into space, uncommunicative, only to awaken not knowing where he was. Eventually, it was discovered he was suffering from mild epileptic seizures during these moments, and he was discharged from the military. He returned home to Hanover, again a failure and a terrible disappointment to his father, Ollie, 
While he had been gone, Ali had convinced Johanna to use her inheritance to open a cigar factory, and Ali put his son Fritz to work. Ali was a harsh boss and didn't give his son any special treatment. But under strict structure, again, Fritz excelled. He started as a floor sweep and moved up the ranks and was soon operating machinery of his own, cranking out stogies. But tensions between the father and son remained high. And though Fritz excelled at his job in the cigar factory, the two often argued ferociously, Ollie threatening to put Fritz in a mental hospital, Fritz threatening to tell the police about the murder his father had committed on the train. Then, in July of 1896, when he was just 16 years old, Fritz was arrested for the first time. He'd been molesting young boys, luring them away to basements, and using the shame of what had happened keep them from talking. But parents began noticing how strange their children were acting and demanding to know what was going on. Eventually, the kids broke down and told them about what Fritz had been doing to them. While the police were notified, a group of angry parents set out to find him and tear him apart. And in a panic over being attacked, Fritz actually turned himself into the police to escape the angry mob. He was sent to a mental institution in the city of Hildesheim, where he was deemed, quote, incurably deranged, end quote, and sentenced to remain in the institution until the end of his life. But his time as a locksmith apprentice paid off. After only seven months, he was able to silently pick each and every lock, keeping him in, and easily escape what was a literal fortress for the criminally insane. And his loving mother was in on the whole thing as well. When he clambered over the wall of the institution to freedom, there was a horse-drawn carriage awaiting him with a suitcase of clothing and a large chunk of cash. And he was whisked away over the border and into Switzerland. (laughs) That's pretty hilarious that his mom did that. I mean, it's not, but like, gotta love these (laughs) mothers of serial killers. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. In Zurich, he had a distant cousin who took him in after being told all the accusations were false and he'd been framed. And the Swiss had no extradition agreement with Germany, so he didn't even have to hide his identity. In Zurich, Fritz found work as a handyman in the shipping yard. Zurich had a thriving gay community at the time. And Fritz would often go to cabarets and wild parties. But much like freeway killer William Bonin, he just couldn't fit in with the gay culture of the times. He was too weird and introverted. After a few years, he decided to return to Germany, most likely to escape more rumors of molestation. He arrived in Hanover and walked right into his parents' home as if he'd never left. His mother was elated. Her darling boy was home again. But his father flew into an utter rage and savagely beat him, while Fritz cried out that he'd been cured, that he was changed, and the doctors had healed his perverted lusts, and he was a new person that would never commit acts like that again. Fritz was quietly put to work in a back office of one of his parents' businesses, hidden from the parents who would surely thrash him for what he'd done to their sons all those years ago. Fritz set out to prove his manhood to his father, and wooed a local girl named Erna Lauert. 
She was a pretty girl, but large of frame and getting on in her years, being considerably older than Fritz. Both of their parents were delighted in the union. Fritz's father, happy that his son had gone straight, and Erna's parents that she was finally betrothed when prospects were starting to dim. But before the wedding could take place, Erna became pregnant, and fearing the wrath of her family, Fritz fled again for the military, where he was assigned to the number 10 rifle battalion in the Alsatian city of Colmar. Fritz loved military life and was an excellent marksman, scoring the highest in his company during target practice. He was strong and athletic, thriving during field training exercises. He would later say this was the happiest time in his life. The fainting spells and seizures that had plagued him as a youth appeared to be gone, and a career in the military was on the horizon. But then his mother died. She'd been his only friend, his protector. He was so very much a mama's boy all his life. And perhaps because of the stress of his mother's death, the epilepsy returned. And this time with full on seizures. He was given an honorable discharge and a disability pension of 21 marks a month, a paltry sum that he'd not be able to survive on. When he returned home, his father followed through on his old threat of having him committed to a mental institution, and he was whisked away against his will to a sanitarium. Ali figured with Johanna gone, there'd be no escape for Fritz now, and he'd remain hospitalized the rest of his life where he could no longer shame the family and be a danger to children. But Ali was wrong. The doctor assigned Fritz's case found him sane and competent, though he did note that because of his obvious homosexuality, he was, quote, morally inferior, which, ugh, but at 24 years old, Fritz Harmon was released back to society. He took up residence in an apartment with Erna, who by now had given birth to their child. While Fritz and Ali continued to have a contentious relationship with heated arguments that often turned violent, Ali did help Fritz open a fishmonger shop. Despite being a drunken womanizer, Ali had quite a business sense and found an ideal storefront location, as well as a steady supply chain to ensure they'd always have fresh catches for sale. But Ali insisted everything be put in Erna's name, not Fritz's. Ali explained this was so Fritz could continue to collect his disability check from the military, so Fritz agreed to the arrangement. Erna was also the face of the business, working up front and greeting customers, while Fritz was sequestered to the back room, butchering fish, as he was still a much-hated pariah in the town. But life was not domestic tranquility. Fritz was resentful of having to labor in the back rooms as a butcher with his wife as the boss, and they'd argue often. Then Fritz was accused of having an affair, and Erna demanded he leave at once. Since the entire business had been put in Erna's name, Fritz was destitute, with only his pension to live on. Ali couldn't care less. His daughter-in-law had a thriving business to raise his grandchild on. So as far as he was concerned, Fritz had made his bed. Now he could sleep in it. Never again would Ali give any help to his least-liked son. In fact, Ali would never speak another word to his disgraced offspring again. With no moral scruples whatsoever, an obvious sociopath, Fritz immediately fell into a life of crime, 
often using his skills as a locksmith to burglarize homes. He also became a con man and developed a network of connections in Germany's criminal underworld. He began to consort with smugglers and began fencing stolen goods. But in order to give himself an air of legitimacy, he took a job as a clerk in a government office. Here he learned to cook the books and filter off funds for himself. While performing fraudulent activities and scams, he met a fellow employee at the office, practicing the same devious methods of illicit gain. This woman and Fritz were obviously kindred spirits and fell in together. She introduced him to another lucrative criminal enterprise, grave robbing. Two would go out together at night to the graveyard and under the cover of darkness, dig up corpses, stripping them of their valuables and selling them. The beauty of it was no one was looking for this stolen jewelry or complaining that it was missing. And therefore, they could sell it on the open market and didn't need to rely on shady fences in the underground black market. Fitz took right to it and wasn't bothered by having to deal with corpses at all. When a finger needed to be sliced off to retrieve a ring, he didn't bat an eye, using his skills from the fishmonger shop as a butcher to do whatever had to be done. He also began to take on gay lovers and rob them when their guard was down knowing they'd never report him to the police for fear of being outed as gay. Homosexuality was a crime in Germany at the time, punishable with prison time. But eventually, his thievery caught up with him, and he was reported to the police. When his apartment was searched, it was found to be a den of stolen and illicit goods. He was facing serious prison time. It was then that Fritz realized his value as an informant and snitch. By ratting out a few of his criminal associates, he had his prison time seriously reduced. But he still ended up behind bars for a time. In prison, he amassed more underworld connections, strengthening his criminal circuit. He also learned how prison love worked, how the older and stronger men could offer protection to the younger boys in exchange for sexual favors and developing a relationship. When he was released from prison, Fritz immediately fell back into his criminal enterprises, utilizing all that he had learned behind bars. He lurked in Hanover's central train station, watching the smugglers, taking notes, developing an encyclopedic knowledge of the German underworld that he would then take to the police. He operated like this for years. But when he was caught in the act of robbing a warehouse in 1913, red-handed, there was no getting out of it, and he ended up back in prison, this time serving a solid five years. And it was during his time serving this sentence that Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria was assassinated with the shot heard around the world, and World War I broke out. While Fritz rotted away in prison, wholesale slaughter on a global scale never conceived of was occurring. Every nation in the world engaged in the conflict. Trenches and barbed wire stretched across Europe. Poisonous gases were developed, and every able-bodied man in Germany was conscripted into service. The population of Germany decreased so rapidly that it would take years before an accurate death toll could be reached. Soon, even teenagers and the elderly were being conscripted to the battlefield, 
leaving little few to keep up the manpower needed to run a modern city. Laborers were needed to harvest the fields, run the trains and factories. So the prisons began leasing men out during the day for labor. And Fritz found himself as a gardener in a rich estate. Early every morning, he'd be released to go work as a gardener for a German aristocrat, more or less free to leave whenever he chose, going out, drinking with his friends, scheming, then returning to the prison in the evening for dinner and a good night's sleep. He was even being paid for all this. And it was during this time that Fritz met his true love, Hans. Hans Granz was in his early 20s and in prison for pimping charges. The two roomed at the prison together, and Fritz would bring him back treats from his excursions on work release. Whatever Hans wanted, Fritz was sure to get him. Though Hans was not gay, he saw the advantage of carrying on a homosexual relationship with the much older Fritz while incarcerated. It was just a necessary matter of convenience. But for Fritz, this was true love. He finally felt fulfilled, having the affection and sexual gratification he'd so longed for, but been denied. It was a completely different world that Fritz and his lover Hans were released from prison to. Germany had lost the war, and the economic sanctions imposed on them were mind-numbingly devastating. It was a desolate and starving world the two men entered. But one the two criminals were more than adept at reigning in, as the black market flourished. Those who had lived on the periphery of society were now the most in demand, as there was simply nowhere else to get goods. And Fritz knew them all, the smugglers, thieves, con artists, and profiteers. Fritz thrived in this post-war world, and soon had himself a lavishly decorated apartment, with all the modern conveniences using his wealth to regale his lover Hans, taking him out and lavishing him with bootleg liquor and fancy feasts. And with the breakdown of traditional society, gay culture flourished with cabarets and nightclubs where suddenly Fritz was royalty. One of the most lucrative items on the black market was choice cuts of meat. Since food was still being rationed, farmers were given a flat rate for their meat products by the government, no matter how high the quality. So many farmers took to selling their choicest cuts and highest quality meats to the black market, where the wealthy would buy it up at a much higher price than the government's stipend. Soon Fritz was taking huge cuts of meat and butchering them into steaks right there in his apartment. For the first time in Fritz's life, he was a true success even wealthier than his father. And he'd done it all on his own. He was also in love. While the rest of Germany suffered and struggled, Fritz Harman was a happy and wealthy man. Knowing he was bound to soon come under the scrutiny of the police, Fritz quickly went back to being an informant, visiting the police station daily with updates on all the organized crime rings, asking if there were active cases he could help with, and sharing his luxury cigars and choice-cut meats with the sergeants who were most appreciative. He slowly went from being an odd necessity to being a fixture, to becoming an old friend and drinking buddy. But as Fritz made new connections, so did his young lover Hans, who, remember, was not really gay and just using Fritz as a mean to a 
lavish lifestyle. And soon, Hans drifted away. Fitz was heartbroken, but there were plenty of fish in the sea, and with the sudden acceptance of gay culture in the city, many young men were heading to the cities where they could live a more open lifestyle, and Fritz was seen as minor celebrity in the bars and cabarets. One young man who was dazzled by Fritz was Friedel Roth, only 17. If Friedel, Fritz was sophisticated and cultured, and drinking in a bar late one night, Fritz was able to talk Friedel into coming back to his apartment, where he had some top-quality bootleg liquor, and the two went giggling out into the night. In Fritz's apartment, the two kissed and stumbled into the bedroom, but they collapsed onto the bed, Fritz passionately tearing at Friedel's clothes. But Fritz was being too forceful, too rough, pressing Friedel down to the bed, and Friedel cried softly. Nein, nein, stop, not so fast, please. But Fritz kept right at it. His eyes glazed over, filled with a violent passion, pinning the boy down with all his weight, holding him tighter in his grasp as Friedel began to struggle as all of Fritz's anger at his father, his heartbreak over having been scorned by Hans, all of it began to boil up from him and bubble over. Stop it, stop it. You're being too rough. You're, you're hurting me. Halt, Dean and Mond, Fritz growled at the youth, telling him to be quiet. And then Friel began to scream. Stop it, stop it. Lass mich in Ruch. Transfixed by the boy's throat, by the bobbing Adam's apple that seemed to be the source of the screaming, Fritz began to change, to transform, right there, into a werewolf. Not physically. He didn't sprout hair, grow fangs, but the beast within him awoke, and Fritz became a monster. Opening his mouth, he bared his glimmering teeth and snapped at the boy's throat, chomping down on his Adam's apple gnashing his teeth closed, thrashing his neck and tearing the flesh and gristle loose. Blood spurt high and far, hot and salty, drenching Fritz in the bed. And as the agonized Friedel went into death throes, Fritz went on with his violent sexual assault, his mouth filled with human flesh and blood. The Wolfman of Hanover had claimed his first victim. Afterwards, drained, exhausted, drenched in blood with the taste of human flesh in his mouth, Fritz contemplated his options. He needed to dispose of the body, quickly. Having been a grave robber, he wasn't bothered by human corpses at all. And having an underground butcher's shop in his apartment, he had plenty of knives and was quite skilled in their use. First, Fritz skinned the corpse. Then he removed the organs and set them aside. He then set to butchering the carcass, removing all the meat from the bones. The organs he'd dice up and feed to stray dogs. The meat he'd sell on the black market as pork. The bones, though. What was he going to do with the bones? 
he decided to bury them in the local graveyard. Knowing the skull was the most recognizable, though, and not wanting to get caught with it, he wrapped it in cloth and hid it behind the stovepipe while he decided just what to do with it. After a couple of days, Friedel's friends and family began to wonder what had happened to him. He seemed to have just disappeared. Eventually, a police report was made. It didn't take long for detectives to learn that the last person seen with him was Fritz Harman, a known homosexual with a record of abducting and molesting boys. Police went to Fritz's apartment with a warrant and burst in to find Fritz in bed with a naked teenager. Little did the police realize they'd probably just saved the boy's life, for the wolfman had developed a taste for blood and found his preferred method of murder, what he called his nuschflech, or love bite in English, namely ripping the Adam's apple out of a victim's throat with his bare teeth. Homosexuality was illegal in Germany, and they'd caught Fritz right in the act. The boy was sent away, but Fritz was hauled off to jail. The police casually looked the apartment over. There was blood, but Fritz was known as a black market butcher. Half the police force had probably received a nice cut of meat from him on more than one occasion, so they paid it no mind. If they had, though, and had just looked behind the stovepipe, they would have found Friedel's decapitated head still sitting there, wrapped in cloth. The case fizzled out after that, the police not wanting to waste too much time or resources on an icky gay crime, and claiming the boy had probably just run away, just like we saw with the victims of the Freeway Killers, the John Wayne Gacy and Dean Coral and Jeffrey Dahmer. It's so sad. And... This really is just like a German 1920s freeway killer story. And then, amazingly, this is fucking crazy, man. Friedel's parents, they receive a letter from him saying he's running away from home until his mother was nice again. Apparently, Friedel had actually been planning on leaving and running away and had written and mailed this letter right before running into Fritz at the bar that night. Can you believe that shit, man? It's a crazy stroke of luck for Fritz. Yeah, like the nail in the coffin. <laughs> Fritz was sentenced to nine months in prison for engaging in a homosexual act. But using his police connections, he was able to get the sentence deferred long enough to get his affairs in order, namely to get rid of that skull behind the stovepipe, hack and clean up the apartment before turning himself in and serving his time. Beyond the Shadows podcast. In the darkest corners of our universe lie spaces where even the light won't go. Places where terror and the unknown lurk, always waiting. Join Ryan and Scott on the Beyond the Shadows podcast as we pull back the curtain and peer into the darkness. We'll examine hauntings, true crimes, mysteries, UFOs, exorcisms, reincarnations, mysteries, and all things dark. Join us as we go Beyond the Shadows When Fritz was eventually released from prison, who should come crawling back but that whimsical tramp Hans, 
Apparently, the young pimp had fallen on hard times and hadn't been able to make much of a go at becoming a successful criminal. And he was now homeless, sleeping on the benches at the train station. Fitz was delighted. The love of his life was back. But things in Germany were slowly changing. Much of the post-war food rationing was still in place, so he could continue with his black market meat enterprise, but many other restrictions were being lifted. Trade had been opened up with neighboring countries, which greatly affected the smuggling business, as luxury goods could now be bought on the open market. Fritz went right back to being a police informant, which surprised many of the police who thought there would be bad blood between them after his arrest. But all was forgiven, and the routine began anew as Fritz turned over a list of addresses of criminals and what crimes they had committed. Of course, these were criminals that had refused to do business with Fritz. So, not only had he gotten back in the good graces of the police, but he'd eliminated all his competition as well in one fell swoop. And soon, young runaways and vagabonds that loitered in the train station were disappearing. And the police... They couldn't care less. By murdering them in a sexual frenzy, butchering them and selling their meat on the black market, Fritz was actually cleaning the city up of derelicts and undesirable elements. And the fact that most of them were gay or sex workers made them the less dead in the eyes of the police. Indeed, Fritz had learned his lesson. Never murder anyone who is going to be missed. Never kill someone with a family that is going to come looking for them. And Hans slowly became aware of Fritz's dreadful deeds. Realizing where much of the gifts the older man lavished him with were coming from, the facts culminating together into a pinnacle when Hans walked in on Fritz in the act of butchering a human body for its meat. Far from being shocked and disgusted, what Hans did was began to calculate the profits. There was whatever money and valuables the victim had on them, and the high price they received for what was considered pork, but was really human flesh. Hans had always considered the effeminate and gay Fritz to be soft, a bit of a joke, really. But now a new respect came over him when he realized his lover was a cold-blooded murderer. Fritz procured a ground-floor apartment at 27 Sellerstraat in the haunted area of Hanover, where they could store their illicit goods and fence the stolen property brought to him by his circle of underground criminal associates. It was a secret place. The police had no idea existed, and it was soon filled with furniture, boxes of clothes, and jewelry. They also used this space to entertain guests, proudly offering home-cooked meals of the finest unrationed ingredients, cocktails made with bootleg liquor, and decadent desserts. Fritz, of course, would invite young men and boys he met at the train station for dinner and offer them a place to stay for the night. And these young men would never be seen again. And Hans became an accessory, roaming the train station and helping Fritz decide which runaways and transients they should entice back to the warehouse to rob and butcher for meat. As Hans was much younger than Fritz, and not as awkward and strange, 
he was slicker at gaining their trust. Some he'd pick out because he coveted their clothing, an expensive coat or nice leather shoes. Others out of jealousy because he felt Fritz was showing them too much affection. On March 20th, 1923, Wilhelm Schultz, a 17-year-old fledgling writer, came to the city of Hanover by train. He exited Central Station and vanished. So now these assholes are targeting writers, Krista. It's getting personal. <laughs> Good grief. On February 12th, 1923, Fritz encountered a young pianist also named Fritz, Fritz Frank. The 16-year-old Fritz Frank had traveled from Berlin to Hanover in search of work, and Fritz Harmon invited him to a dinner party. He was never seen again. Just three days later, Roland Hoch, a 15-year-old student, took the train to Hanover and disappeared without a trace in Central Station. Then 18-year-old runaway Hans Sonnerfeld fled to Hanover by way of train. He was seen in a cabaret that night with Fritz, and that was the last anyone ever saw of them. Many of these crimes had very little profit. Runaways don't have much cash or valuables. Their clothes were ragged, no good for resale. But for Fritz, it wasn't about money. It was about passion. It was about releasing his inner beast. The Dionysian high of losing one's self to the monster inside. In short, it was about the wicked and carnal pleasures of being a werewolf. Ernst Amberg was just 13 and running an errand for his mother when he disappeared. The werewolf was getting sloppy, but he wanted a very young victim, someone he didn't have to murder first to sexually assault, someone he could rape while they were still alive, conjuring the wolf in him to rip out their throat with his bare teeth at the exact moment of climax. Heinrich Strauss was an 18-year-old violin prodigy traveling by train to Hanover for music lessons. He never arrived at his appointment. Fritz was delighted to discover the boy's violin was a very rare and valuable make, fetching a great price. Police would later find the case in the heap of miscellaneous knickknacks in Fritz's apartment. Paul Bronaszewski was a Polish boy traveling to visit his uncle in Hanover, but he never made it past the train station. He was poor in raggedy clothing with no money, so the police saw no reason why he'd be mugged or abducted and assumed he must have just run off on some adventure. 16-year-old Wilhelm Ardner was riding his bike, performing errands in the town center. He parked his bike outside Central Station and was never seen again. On and on and on, the murders continued. Herman Wolf, 16. Heinz Brickman, 13. Adolf Hanapel, 15. Adolf Hennies, 19. Ernst Spiker, 17. Heinrich Koch, Willie Sanger, Herman Speakert, Alfred Hogareffi, Herman Brock, Wilhelm Alpel, Robert Wietzel, Heinz Martin, the werewolf had gone into a feeding frenzy, sometimes killing twice in a single day. On the 26th of May, he took the lives of both Fritz Wittig and Friedrich Abeling, who was only 11 years old. 
Fitz's killing spree had escalated to unfathomable limits, and he was no longer carefully burying the skulls. He was now just dumping them right in the river with the rest of the bones, where one eventually washed up and was discovered by a group of children playing by the river's edge. By mid-June of 1924, four skulls had washed up on the banks of the river. Police were initially skeptical of foul play and theorized that the skulls had come from the Anatomical Institute of Göttingen, where medical students study bodies. Göttingen found this quite insulting and denied any possibility of the skulls coming from them. Then it was said they were typhoid victims, which made no sense since there were clear knife marks on the bones and skulls showing they'd been butchered. So grave robbers were blamed a favorite scapegoat of the police at the time. But outrage and rumors reached a fever pitch when a group of children discovered a burlap sack full of human bones. Now it was in the newspapers, which were also listing the many, many missing boys and men. The term serial killer didn't exist back then, and townsfolk struggled to comprehend what kind of monster was out there, many coming to the conclusion that Obviously, there was a werewolf of some type on the loose in Hanover. And they weren't exactly wrong. On Whit Sunday, a high holiday when everyone in Germany was off of work, a massive team of hundreds of concerned citizens gathered and spread out through the city, searching all of Old Town, the paths by the river, and out into the countryside. It was an undertaking of immense proportions and unprecedented in German history. The search would turn up so many human bones that the police couldn't process them all. And medical students from the Göttingen Institute were called in to help them work through all of the bodies and help identify them. Then the river was dammed. And within moments, as the murky water slowed to a trickle and the muddy river bottom exposed itself, bones were revealed. Over 500 clusters of bones would be discovered, some very, very fresh and with obvious knife marks. Medical students were able to piece together 22 distinct bodies and estimated there were anywhere from a dozen to a hundred more bodies from the random bones and fragments discovered. The story broke big, making international headlines. The Wolfman of Hanover was now known about worldwide. But who was this monster lurking in the shadows? Detectives from Berlin were called into the case, and for weeks they pored over all the case files of missing boys, reading witness testimonies, and every known sex criminal in the whole of Hanover was questioned, and almost immediately one suspect came to the forefront, Fritz Harmann. Fritz was found at the train station, basically in the process of molesting a youth who quickly told the police, how Fritz had been raping him with a knife to his throat for days, and Fritz ended up in jail for questioning. Detectives then proceeded to Fritz's apartment. The place reeked of death and looked like a slaughterhouse. There were bloody butcher's tools lying out in the open, and blood covered the walls, floors, furniture, and bed. Piles of clothing and stolen belongings lay in heaps, 
much of it having come from missing teenage boys. As the detectives were searching the apartment and making an inventory of the stolen goods, who should come wandering onto the scene but that whimsical scamp Hans? At first, he thought the police were there by some prearranged deal they'd made with Fritz, but he quickly learned otherwise when they threw him to the ground and slapped handcuffs on his wrists. In the end, detectives were able to identify items from 27 missing boys in the apartment, including the violin case which had belonged to musical protege Heinrich Strauss. Fritz denied everything at first, but then, finally, realized the evidence was overwhelming and that he was not getting out of this one. So, he asked for a cup of strong coffee and some cigars, and the Wolfman of Hanover began to confess to his terrible, terrible crimes. On the 4th of December, 1924, the trial for Fritz Harman, the Wolfman of Hanover, began. During the trial, Fritz was, well, a complete asshole. He smoked cigars and shouted, basking in his newfound celebrity. When brought face-to-face with family members of his victims, he showed no contrition, no sympathy, instead insisting that their loved ones had come to him for sex and were degenerates and homosexuals. He said they begged for him to sodomize them, and they got what they deserved. At one point, Fritz was handed the photograph of a missing boy and declared he hadn't killed him and wouldn't have, explaining he was simply too ugly that he liked to rape his victims both before and after killing them, and he wouldn't have been attracted to such a hideous face. When the prosecution pointed out that the boy's belongings were in his apartment, Fritz took a puff of his cigar and said, well, maybe he had killed him, but if he had, he must have been drunk to be attracted to such an ugly boy. When shown other photographs, Fritz would say things like, Charge it to my account. And, Yeah, I assume he's one of mine. His landlady took the stand and talked of how he was boiling meat at all hours and skimming the fat to bottle and sell. She also claimed that her family had become ill after eating sausages that Fritz had given to them. Fritz had called them sheep sausage. Neighbors testified to seeing him constantly leaving the apartment with packaged meat for sale, yet never seeing him bringing deliveries in, only a string of young men that were never seen leaving. Two lady friends of Hans testified that they had seen a pot of boiling soup with a human mouth in it, but Fritz had explained it was just a pig's snout. They'd been so alarmed, they never returned, and one even went to the police and told them what she'd seen. But the police had just told her that a human mouth and a pig snout look very similar, and she was being overly dramatic. Man. And in fact, a very grim picture was painted of the Hanover Police Department, as further witnesses testified that they'd reported their suspicions to the police as well. And it wasn't lost on the town folks that Fritz was not brought to justice until Berlin detectives had been called in and assigned the case. There had been dozens, perhaps even hundreds of complaints made to the Hanover police over the many, many years. But they'd all been ignored 
because Fritz was such a great informant, their favorite, in fact. Fritz took the stand and proudly let the wolf out, saying, I have tried my best to fit into society's standards, but found that they were in direct opposition to my fundamental nature. Fritz Frederick Heinrich Karl Harman was found guilty and sentenced to death. When the judge asked if he would like to give a final statement, he said, Condemn me to death. I only ask for justice. I am not mad. Make it short. Make it soon. Deliver me from this life which is torment. I will not petition for mercy. Nova, I appeal. I want to pass just one more merry night in my cell with coffee, cheese, and cigars. After which I will curse my father and go to my execution as if it were a wedding. Old loverboy Hans, in a separate murder trial, was sentenced to death as well. But far from the stoic chivalry of his former lover, Hans broke down into tears, wailing and blubbering, and had to be carried from the courtroom. But Fritz loved Hans to the end and wrote a letter to the court saying Hans was completely innocent, that he was just a foolish young man who had fallen under the influence of a much older and far more wicked man. And the letter served its purpose. Hans's death sentence was commuted, and he was sentenced to only 10 years in prison. But fate wouldn't be that kind, as after years of hard labor, before his release date could occur, Hitler and the Nazis came to power. The Nazis considered gays an abomination, and Hans was sent to Schaschenhausen concentration camp. Of course, I'm sure everyone knows that the pink triangle that has become the symbol of the LGBTQ movement was what the Nazis used to label gays in concentration camps. Hans remained in that concentration camp until it was liberated in 1945. Afterwards, he went back to Hanover, where he'd remain until his death 30 years later in 1975. Now, it's a German tradition to not tell a prisoner their execution date until the night before as a means of reducing the suffering as they wait. But to me, that seems way worse. I think I'd rather know. Otherwise, every single day is a misery, right? Just sitting there wondering, is it today? Are they going to come tell me tonight? Yeah, I'd have to agree there. I don't know. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> uh, but that day finally came, and Fritz Harman was led to the guillotine that had been constructed in the prison yard, pale and still trembling, but with his head held high. He was offered assistance to walk up and kneel on the contraption, but turned it down, saying, I am guilty, gentlemen, but hard though it may be, I want to die as a man. The Wolfman of Hanover placed his head into the guillotine, the executioner closing the lock over him as Fritz looked up and shouted at the gathered crowd, I repent, but I do not fear death. Then the blade came streaking down, slicing his head off his body, and in the end, no silver bullet was needed to kill the Wolfman of Hanover. Fritz requested a headstone that proudly proclaimed him to be a mass murderer. But instead, his body was just thrown into a pauper's grave 
the location unknown to this day. But his decapitated head, it was taken to be examined by medical scientists. The structure of his brain was completely normal, but there was evidence in the tissue suggesting he had suffered from meningitis at some point in his life, which may have caused some of his bouts of fainting and paralysis. His entire head was then preserved in formaldehyde, where it would remain until 2014 when it was finally cremated. But there's pictures of it. Fritz's head floating in this big old jar, and you know we'll post some up on Instagram. All of the bones from the investigation were gathered together and buried collectively in Stuckener Cemetery, with a large granite memorial listing all the confirmed victims. It's actually quite beautiful, and we'll post a pic. But in the end, Fritz Hamann did get the memorial he so wished for. The Sprengel Museum of Modern Art in Lower Saxony has a bronze memorial to him. It is extremely bizarre and disturbing. There's like a naked, bloated Fritz standing at the end of a table, and on the table is a decapitated head, and a naked man reaching into the cavity of a corpse to pull the guts out. It, it's something, man. We'll post a picture of it. And the museum also provides a crime scene walking tour through Hanover. So if you ever go to Hanover and get a hankering to see where the werewolf prowled, there you go. That's crazy that there's a memorial. It's just nuts. I it's, mean, it's, I guess it's not like saying he's good. It's like fucking disturbing looking. Yeah. You know I mean? No, I mean, yeah, it's. You know, we've got the Lizzie Borden hat. We've got stuff like that, of course, too. But totally. it's just crazy to think about. I mean, bucket list for me. I'd go see it. and I'd definitely go on that walking tour. Sounds yeah, yeah, fun. for sure. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for today's Werewolf. But be sure to tune in next week as we explore one of the most devious and disturbing werewolves of all time. Across the Atlantic in 1930s New York City. That's going to be a gnarly one, let me tell you. And hey, we want to hear from you. Got a case you think we should cover? Did we get something wrong? Or do you just want to say hi? Drop us a line at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. That's murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. Stay safe out there, everybody. And watch out for those goddamn werewolves. <laughs>